0: Welcome to another Rational Face podcast episode. I'm Brian Dillman.
1: And I'm Brian Kissel.
0: Rational Face is a Mormon-based blog and podcast seeking to provide a safe, fair, and balanced space to discuss the complexities,
2: difficulties, and beauty of our Mormon tradition.
1: In an entertaining and informal way, we're dedicated to exploring the vital, applicable, and expansive topics that we're all wrestling with as Mormons while simultaneously keeping Mormonism weird.
0: Yes, indeedy. So, uh... Brian Do you know what today's topic is?
1: Yes, and I'm a little nervous. I don't
0: <laughs> <laughs> the reason you're nervous is because it is not the scripture podcast that we had advertised last Ye- time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we actu- sure. we, ag- we actually had uh, Dr. Fife contact us and she has a uh, she has some seminars coming up. And so we wanted to do another Ask Dr. Fife episode. And so Laurel and I sat and talked with Dr. Fife and,
2: while well, she answered some questions from listeners.
1: So I'm really excited about this. It, this is a similar one that we've done before where we have all of these differing questions that um, Dr. Fife is generously answering for us. So I, I think that these questions are all really interesting and, and important to talk about, especially because just in our culture in general talking about sex and uh, especially for i don't know um listening to some of these questions that um, women are having and being able to get uh, good responses as well as just in general like for me it's always been something that i'm fairly uncomfortable with talking about and and being able to have her Uh, come on and be able to respond to some of these questions I think is really valuable
0: yeah I think this is one of the Mormon paradoxes that um where we actually have we value sex and we we think that it's important you know we teach that we don't have sex just to make babies but it's there to um express love between two um a pair of spouses um but we don't really ever talk about it <laughs>
2: right, right. We,
0: we've sacral we've sacralized this thing and we tell the youth and we tell our kids that it's uh not my kids because my kids are like six years old or younger yeah but uh you know we we teach our the youth in our religion that it's very special and it's very sacred and it's wonderful but that's about all we say we never get into the into the problems or into, um given any real concrete advice. And so I, f- I, th- I think, I think Dr. Finlayson Fife is, uh, is an invaluable resource because she gives voice to all these concerns and she gives you real straightforward, useful advice.
1: Yeah. Just, just to go off of what you were saying, I, like when we do talk about it, uh, most of the time it's very fear-based be because we it, like, like it will be in like in if we're going to talk about it in elders quorum, for example, it'll be about pornography. Right. And it'll be about how this will destroy your world. If we're talking about some kind of a sexuality, it's never it's never anything more complex than that. You know, so. So, yeah, just having these conversations, I think, is really valuable. So. So anyways, uh, do you think we should just go ahead and jump into that?
0: Let's jump into it and let's, uh, <clears throat> let's see what questions the listeners have for us this time around. Hi,
3: everyone. This is Laurel Armstrong on Rational Base. We are here again with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fyfe and Brian Dillman. And uh, Jennifer, why don't you give us a short intro for those who might be tuning in for the first time about yourself and what you do?
4: Sure. Um, I am a couples therapist primarily and I practice out of Chicago, Illinois, and I um, wrote my dissertation on Mormon women and sexuality and primarily uh, work with couples on both relationship and sexuality issues. And um, Because I've done a lot with the LDS population, my, my um, clientele is primarily LDS at this point. So, um, so that's
3: me. Excellent. And uh, just so everyone knows, this is a series of podcasts. We take questions regularly for Dr. Fife about sexuality, especially from an LDS perspective. Also, Jennifer is wanting to let everyone know about some seminars she's doing in Washington, D.C. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, November
4: 7th and 8th, I will be in Washington, D.C., uh, I'll do, be doing a workshop for women on Friday evening the 7th in Silver Spring, Maryland, and then two workshops in Alexandria, Virginia, um, the first on, for LDS women, again, a four-hour workshop um, on the Art of Desire. And then in the evening, a couples workshop, doesn't have to be couples, but men and women essentially, on losing strategies in relationships and how they undermine passion and um, connection in relationships. So, and if people are interested in them, they can just get on my website. Maybe you can link to it, and um,
3: yeah, there's more that. information
4: about those classes there.
3: Okay, excellent. Yeah, we'll have a link on the website to that. Anything you wanted to add, Brian?
0: Just that I'm here (laughs) trying to not be too uncomfortable. (laughs)
3: I'll
0: see if I can help any way that I can.
3: All right. Well, we have two questions to ask Jen today. Um, The first one is a bit of a long one, but it's got a lot of good meat in it. So I will first read it, and then we can probably spend 45 (laughs) minutes dissecting it. All right. So here it is. Growing up, I wanted to be a young one of virtue. This meant being a guardian of young men virtue. Despite being attractive and feeling like I wanted to develop my burgeoning sexual identity, I controlled and suppressed it. I find the sex rhetoric in church to be male-centric. A female who has decided not to have premarital sex will require maintenance of a pilot light of sexuality through premarriage marriage years. For males, this pilot light stays stoked through overt biology and sociocultural factors. For women, the process is more complex i.e., a woman who suppresses her sexuality successfully in her youth cannot suddenly construe herself as having a sexual identity, which is, ironically, necessary to fulfill the role of wife and mother as encouraged by Mormonism. A male, anecdotally speaking, might be more able to suppress sexual behaviors prior to marriage, but is less likely to be inhibited or disinterested in sex once given the green light. In other words, Mormonism doesn't just create low-drive women partners, but sometimes no-drive partners. For me, I didn't naturally feel like a low-drive partner, but was so successful in being the ideal young woman that I have turned into this. I'm unhappy with it and willing to do the ugly work of uprooting my identity to fix this. I will be with my husband forever and am disinterested in taking on a martyr complex, like I'm a low-drive partner because I'm less carnal, more holy, to protect myself. The question here is where do I start? How can you cultivate desire? If I weren't married I know precisely how I'd do this, but I'm unable to do those things now I'm married I think desire helps you cultivate sexuality, but how can I cultivate sexuality via desire if I have what I desire
4: right meaning she has she's married already essentially or she has access to a sexual relationship I assume she means yeah well it's a, it's an excellent question and a very very typical question um, I actually just finished teaching a a course series online to LDS women on the art of desire. And it was a, it was a great class and I love teaching it. And, and so that's probably a more complex, uh, that's the more complete answer to her question. Um, if she's interested in checking that out, but cause the, um, the recordings are for sale, but, but I would say, um, oh gosh, there's a lot to say to this. So what I would say is I, first of all, I completely agree with her that that while we hold a single standard around sexuality in the church for men and women around um, non-sexual you know no sexual intercourse prior to marriage and then complete fidelity within marriage that the way that men there is a sexual double standard that's implicit in the rhetoric um, that she's picking up on and I absolutely agree that you know the issues of identity are at the core of what she's saying that men you know um, are Talk to young men are talked to as if they are naturally sexual. Um, as men, they're naturally sexual, but it's important for them to contain and control that natural sexuality. Um, and then the reward of controlling it is to be able to indulge it someday once they're married with a hot virginal wife who has a testimony. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that, that their masculinity is consistent with desire, right? And it's also a very agentic position that they're managing it, but it's going to have its full expression uh, down the road. For women, um, the implicit message is that they're not naturally sexual, or at least good women are not are, are not naturally sexual. And so, um, and if a woman is seen as sexual, she's seen as less than. Right. That she's somehow not in control. She's, you know, slutty or whatever the nicer way of saying that is desperate. And that virtuous women, quite literally, we link women's value with being non-sexual. And so, um, you know, that forging of an identity of being non-sexual and linking it with goodness and desirability becomes really powerful. And this is precisely what this person is speaking to which is that, you know, she really forged a sense of self through repressing and pushing down her sexuality. And many women in my dissertation and clients that I've worked with have talked about this very same idea, which is that, when they entered into marriage, many of them actually felt a sense of loss upon losing their virginity. It wasn't, you know, this sort of welcome embracing of adulthood and moving into a mature, more mature relationship to their bodies and their sexuality. There was a sense that something that had been important to their sense of self was now lost. And now they felt sort of duty bound to their husband's sexuality, but had no sense of ownership of sexuality for themselves. And um, You know, so I I could say a little bit more about that. I I think that, you know, that not only are women not given a sense of desire, but they're really given this strong sense of being desirable. And part of being desirable is to not to be too sexual, but also to be desirable to men's sexuality. So as she wrote in her question, it's all very male centric. It's it's in reference to male sexuality. And in my experience and opinion, women are no less sexual than men. Um, to sound a little bit silly, they're maybe differently sexual, right? But they're not less sexual. They just It's just that in reference to a male frame, women look less sexual than men. And often women are less desirous because they believe their sexuality is there to reinforce men's sexuality. And that's not um, titillating for women, especially in the context of a long-term marriage. Um, so... I think the question is, you know, what do you do about that? I would say that there's maybe two issues to think about. Um, that first, there's the issue of creating a relationship to your own sexuality. And and then there's the issue of desire and or sharing one's sexuality with one's spouse. So um, in terms of creating a relationship to your own sexuality, I think that women have to first acknowledge some degree of betrayal, self-betrayal, in buying into that cultural message. It's not a gospel message. It's 100% a cultural message um, that we've sort of elevated to doctrinal at times, but that is this idea that women are somehow less legitimately sexual or not as sexual as men are. And instead to say, like, I have seen that as somehow how I demonstrate my goodness, but that's been a betrayal of my God-given sexuality, of my body's capacity for arousal and pleasure and excitement and eroticism, that she's saying, you know, I actively suppressed it. Okay, that is a kind of self-betrayal. And it not only undermines women's relationship to their sexuality, it undermines women's access to their to strength and a sense of self and self-confidence because they're literally rejecting a very important and God-given part of themselves and so one has to give themselves permission to forge a relationship to their own sexuality outside of what their husband wants from them or I guess another way of saying is outside of like what I'm trying to be to manage his desires um and you know, in the course i taught I talk a lot about the different ways that you can figure out what that means to you, what ideas and thoughts and feelings um, meaning when you when you 've pushed something down, you can feel kind of numb to it or unaware, and it means a literal sort of reengaging or reawakening of this part of yourself and beginning to let yourself both notice and feel what what taps into your desire what taps into your eroticism what what intrigues you what pleasures you it can mean getting to know your own body and touching your own body to understand what gives you pleasure what feels good to you if a woman's never had an orgasm i do highly recommend her taking time with herself to understand her own body and to um cultivate um her to seduce her own orgasm essentially to be able to know what she needs and then to be able to bring that self-knowledge and self-awareness into her relationship the women in my dissertation research that did best in terms of their transition into marital sexuality had all spent time as adolescents touching themselves and even if they would repented of it or felt that it was sinful that when they entered into marriage they already had forged a relationship to their sexuality uh, they already had a sense that their body had a capacity and it was theirs and, um, and that they not only had that sense of identity, but they also knew what it is that would give them pleasure and they knew what they needed to do inside of themselves to cultivate it. And so they could bring that knowledge into the marriage, but it also allowed the couple to start out more as sort of equal players um, in terms of creating a sexual relationship when women have suppressed it, it, it creates an inherent imbalance in the dynamic and there's the sense that he understands his sexuality, you know, he knows what it is to orgasm and I'm clueless and in his job is to somehow bring this out in me, to somehow cultivate this in me or awaken it in me and that's the only legitimate way for me to be in relationship to my sexuality. But you really are giving men an impossible task at that point in, in many respects. And for women, they're not really taking the responsibility of of creating a relationship to their own sexuality. So, you know, it's, it's starting by giving yourself permission. It's starting to notice and to cultivate and create a space for your eroticism within yourself. And if needed, to better understand um, your body's capacity for orgasm um, through being with yourself alone and then bringing it into the relationship. Um, In terms of creating desire, I guess what I would say is everybody has the challenge of desiring what you already have once you're married, that no longer is desire about conquering of, in, in, in a sense, it's no longer about conquering of, a person who um, you don't yet know and don't yet, you know, have the security of a relationship with. Um, But desire in a marriage is more of a function of integrity and what I mean by that is that it's more of a function of a commitment to, you know, I am bringing my sexuality to this relationship and I'm sharing the best in me and the deepest part of me with you. And it's not always driven by desire in the way you maybe felt it when you were dating, but it is driven by a desire to really invest in another person, to care deeply about another person, and to bring your sexuality to that form of caring. It maybe sounds unexciting in the way I'm saying it, but it can be very exciting and very satisfying way to be sexual, but it's it's it has more to do with developing your capacity to really care for invest in and be open and intimate with another person and it's almost it is basically impossible to do that with your sexuality if you haven't forged a relationship to your sexuality first and so I would just invite this person to start um, learning about her sexuality more exploring her sexuality more uh, and coming to to reconcile a very fundamental part of being a woman and uh, being a sexual being from our parents in heaven and to come um, to reconcile this part of herself. It's, it's not only good for her, and not only good for her relationship, but very, very good for her to do that.
0: Can I ask one little follow-up? Sure. It seems like uh, this kind of thinking that we're often taught from very early ages. So You've been your brain has been shaped over the first twenty plus years of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> a one week intervention, I don't think, is going to overcome that. Mm-hmm. And it might, it might make sense at first. It might feel good at first, and then you'd have a relapse of guilt or mm-hmm. questioning this new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when that relapse or the guilt comes in, what's a way? How do they deal with that?
4: Yeah, well, I th- yes, I think that's probably true that some people can have that. I-, I would also say that I do have the experience with many people where it's like once they have started to reframe th- their relationship to themselves and their sexuality, they really do step into a sense of permission. And they recognize that they have bought into something that has worked against them. And so – um some people can slip back into old ways of thinking for sure. I, mean, I shouldn't just say it like that. Many of us will do that on many, you know, when we step into a new level of development or a new way of seeing things that we can slip back into the old. And all I would say is that's exactly the process. You just reassert what it is that you want, what you believe is in fact true, what you believe is in fact right. And you just keep patiently working with yourself to cultivate and reinforce new ways of being in relationship with yourself or in relationship with your spouse.
3: Um, I had another quick follow-up question there. Sure. Well, you mentioned how, um, you know, men and women both have, you know, in your experience are, you know, pretty equal in sex drive, but that sometimes it can, it manifests differently. And I was curious because I was thinking about it, how um, even though I, you know, when I got married, I was very aware at least of my own desire, but I realized a lot of, you know, a lot of the way that that got expressed was still through, I guess, a male lens, mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, even even outside the church, a lot of sexual desire is couched in in what men desire, even if it's aimed at women. Right. Um, and so, it, and it was actually interesting to me in the last few years when I started really paying attention, like. Going, okay, what is it really that that really, you know, fills you with desire for my husband or even other people, you know, what is it because it was just curious, because I realized I, I hadn't really thought about that. What would that be like to just have feminine? What, what does feminine mm-hmm. desire and sexuality look like? Um, mm-hmm. Because there's so, there's so few examples of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, both how that affects people as they're trying to discover what they desire and if you've noticed like significant differences um, that are uniquely female. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I have a couple thoughts about that. One is just from a kind of um, the sexual experience frame, you know, women's arousal patterns and women's stimulation seldom happens best through intercourse. And so um, that's part of a male centric focus, which is, you know, the quintessential act is intercourse, which is, is infrequently or less commonly um, the most satisfying for women. So there's just various ways of stimulating women um, that the clitoris is this vast um, neural uh, network system that's just is, is best stimulated both manually or orally or, you know, the, and, and then women have erogenous zones throughout their body. So, For people to really, for women to be more aware of what stimulates them and turns them on, you know, what a sexual interaction might look like is going to be maybe it would certainly could include intercourse, but is a much broader um, experience that I would not even call foreplay because foreplay is still making intercourse sort of the quintessential moment. It doesn't have to be that way. There's just so many ways to be intimate and sexual and sensual with one another. And if we open that up, women would enjoy sex much, much more, but, the, mm-hmm. but in terms of eroticism and ideas, I mean, all of us cultivate our notions of eroticism within the context of our family environments and our social environments, mm-hmm. and so um, even if sexuality has been framed from a male lens, that's still the environment in which we learn what it means to be sexual. And so many, many women have fantasies um, that are intriguing for them around the theme of being wanted, desperately wanted, Um, you know, and then often the theme uh, around being wanted by a strong, powerful other, but that doesn't take them over or exploit them, right? So the kind of, you know mr darcy type character who's like rich (laughs) rich and strong and and you know and has desire but Mm -hmm. he's you know he's not going to take her he he wants her and his his desire for her persists against all odds Mm -hmm. um that's a very compelling idea for many women And oftentimes, you know, their husbands are almost have become almost emasculated through being too nice in a sense. And this Mm -hmm. can be really anti-erotic for many women that he's like too careful, too cautious. And they don't want him to come in and be a brute either, but they want a kind of clear sense of desire for her, not just to have sex with her because she's the only legitimate option, but for her as a person. Mm-hmm. and to feel like they're really wanted for who they are and to be that close to them um, as, a, as a function of really desiring them as a person. And, you know, sometimes women are distressed by even the idea of wanting to a certain kind of overpowering. But in, in that fantasy, there's always high levels of control. And in, in being desired, they're given lots of power in that they're wanted that much. A lot of times women have themes around being chosen, like they are the most attractive one, the one that's appealed to amidst other options, the the appealing one amidst other options, because of this idea that male sexuality is indiscriminate. And so when, Mm -hmm. you know, so often fantasies are around really me being, that I'm being cared for and wanted for me can be Mm -hmm. a very compelling fantasy.
3: Bishopric feedback to what is acceptable in the bedroom has been as long as you're both comfortable and you aren't bringing in another person, all is well. Any thoughts? Can that be true? It seems to me that two people may be comfortable doing some things that may not be acceptable.
4: Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I have two responses to it. One is I'm 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 happy to have that idea becoming more commonplace, which is it's, it's not really the bishop's business <laughs> or any other church leader's business. It's really between a couple and there's other authoritative statements like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I generally agree with offering people the privacy to um, work out what their sexual relationship will look like and what form it may take. Uh, that said, I wouldn't say that that makes it virtuous. Um, that if just because you're both reconciled to something, I would make say that makes it far from being necessarily virtuous. And I think the best way to answer that is that all kinds of unholy happens in temple-endowed missionary position marriages. <laughs> uh, what I mean is like whether or not goodness is happening with your sexuality is – something to be sorted through in a more complex way than whether or not you're married, whether or not um, you're heterosexual, and whether or not you are um, in the missionary position. The reason I'm saying that is because, you know, there's sometimes been advice given in the past around oral sex is not okay or, you know, anything that's quote-unquote unnatural. And uh, I think what's much more important than – whether or not you both agree on something, because you could both agree on being in a sexless marriage, you could both agree on things that are humiliating to one person um, and have them not be a function of goodness. I think it's really around whether or not we can make a link between our sexuality and our values and um, <clears throat> whether or not we can use our sexuality to truly bless and benefit our lives, that's, you know, our own life and the life of our our partner our marriage partner and you know am I being responsible with my sexuality I think that's very much the way I talk to my kids about sexuality it's a wonderful thing it's also potentially a very destructive thing how you use you know how you engage the stewardship of your sexuality is very very important whether you're not married or married and are you gonna use it for good or not and part of using it you know, I think sometimes in marital negotiations, people want to elevate non sexuality as somehow good, just like the person in the first question was saying i don 't want to be in that martyr complex and somehow elevating myself as the as the holy one because I have no interest in sex, and I fully agree with her that um, I think that 's a certain kind of cruelty to say i 'm going to be married to you. We entered into a sexual Agreement, you know, that we were going to be married and there was the assumption of a sexual relationship, and now I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it because it makes me uncomfortable. I think that's unloving and unkind and indecent to be unwilling to develop and grow uh, just because you're uncomfortable. Same time, people can be demanding around sexuality in a marriage and, you know, ask the other person to do things um, because. Uh, They don't really care what their partner wants or how he or she feels about it. They just want to be accommodated. Um, And I would say that makes it unholy. Um, Beyond that, I think there's lots of things that couples can do that can add to their joy and pleasure and playfulness together. um, That is genuinely a, a deep expression of intimacy, a deep expression of care and and pleasure and fun together, and you know I know good LDS couples who, you know, will, you know, go to a restaurant and she won't be wearing underwear under her dress because it's just that juxtaposition of being in a public space and having a secret. And you know they, this couple I am in mind, they do all kinds of fun things like that, and they've um, taken movies of themselves, and and they're like a good Mormon couple hold lots of leadership positions, okay? but they have a phenomenal, passionate marriage, and, um, and they have known how to balance this way of really bringing their, their creativity and their courage to their sexuality, but not doing anything that would um, be destructive to the sacredness of what they have together you know, as a couple or to either to themselves or to the other person. So it's just using your good ethical judgment in how you're using your sexuality.
3: That yeah, actually, uh, I had a, a question that came up in my mind as you were talking. Um, like in regards to that, like I, you know, once you get married, I feel like we have tons of advice at church about, you know, what not to do before you're married. Right. Um, you know, and then we all of a sudden are like, okay, you're married and you know, everything's just supposed to work out cause right. you know, it will. Um, and and realizing that there's still, you know, there's still, you know, journeys sure. to go on, you know, with your partner and things to discover. But the thing I realized is that, you know, is there, you know, I, and I, I don't know, like I was torn on this. Is it appro- would it be appropriate at church to discuss intimacy post marriage? Um, I mean, because in some ways I long for that, because, you know, if you go online looking for stuff, you're, you're going to see everything under the sun um mm-hmm. and some things which are demeaning and you know which are not good as well as finding good things um
2: mm-hmm. but at the
3: same time i i know i got new conversation with someone they were like well I, that's the last thing i want to talk about at church um <laughs> yeah. and so right. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that too yeah yeah
4: um, See, i don't i don't know that we have to necessarily have i mean you know i teach the marriage and family relations class and you know with my bishop's permission i do teach a class on marital sexuality that's generally speaking has been welcomed you know very much welcomed by people but i would say that i i don't know that we necessarily need to talk to couples about marital sexuality but i do think we need to do a better job of teaching a, an ethical frame around how to think about sexuality both in mm. and outside of marriage
3: mm-hmm. and
4: knowing how to make those kinds of judgments rather than did elder so and so say you know basically with You know, this strong sense that it's scary and dangerous and then no information that that's just not a very helpful framing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because that to me, it was more of. Yeah, I think I'm just looking for like, is there a place at church or what what job, what what role would the church have in this post marriage that could be beneficial? Because I don't you know, I don't necessarily want more prescriptions. (laughs) (laughs) I think they've gotten away from that. Um, Yeah. But but at the same time, it's it still it's funny because once you get married, it's still silent.
4: Like, Absolutely.
3: It's assumed, but it's, no one talks about it.
4: Right, It's silent in an oppressive way because of the way that it's been set up before marriage. That's why it's so oppressive, the silence, mm-hmm. because it just then does it mean anything goes? Does it mean now I'm, mm-hmm. I have to say yes all the time now because of the sort of marital sexual debt that's implied? You know, it's just and there's just not a, a way to to bring our best Christian ethics, meaning we haven't been taught well in how to bring our best Christian ethics to our sexuality, and I think we could do a better job of that without getting prescriptive and into, um, you know, uncomfortable descriptions of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: How, how do you think someone starts down that road? Because we sort of, we sort of ignore the adult psychological development. And you get married, and then you're an adult, and you're kind of on par with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't – you know, we, we – you have people of all different ages still quoting general authorities to support whatever their mm-hmm. decision for, you know, on any issue is. Mm-hmm. How do you go from having to – how does one start that journey from having to find a quote or find a scripture to support them to using their own moral judgment?
4: Yeah. Well, I just – did an interview with Christine Hagland on this very topic for dialogue um, around you know integrity and developing integrity and how i think it's really fundamental to our theology the notion of integrity because we we believe in gleaning wisdom from authority but we also very much believe in asserting through the, our relationship with god to our personal relationship asserting what we believe is right and There's a tension in that, but I think a very, very important tension, and I think we overplay obedience and deference as the, as the pathway into goodness or godhood in a way that really actually paradoxically undermines the spiritual development of so much of the membership because we, it cultivates a dependency that's immature in its core. And, you know, what we really want is to teach good principles and let people govern themselves. You want to teach good principles around sexuality, good good principles that are actually functional both premaritally and postmaritally, like a, a frame for thinking about it, and then let people um, exercise their good judgment and try and bring their best to those decisions. And that's inherent to spiritual progression and Maturation. So I I just think we, I can understand if I were a church leader, I may want to overplay obedience because when you can get people to just do what you want them to do, it makes your job easier, just like when you're a parent. But that's not really doing your best job because as a parent, if I'm just going to get my kids to obey me and keep me as their reference point, that would be a deep disservice. I want them to use me as a reference point as they're maturing, but I want to, if I'm doing my job, allowing them to develop a deeper and deeper uh, reference point internally that's based on their decisions and a, and a um, developing, deepening, or a deepening capacity for good judgment, and for them to become um, adults in the sense that they're more autonomous than that. It would be bad if they're still looking at me at age 20 and 30. For what decisions to make, so we want to do. I think we need to do a better job of that in the church, and I, I think, in some ways, it either needs to come from the leadership or we need to give ourselves more permission to do it um, because it's right. Ultimately, we're responsible for our choices, no matter what. Even if Elder So and So said it, Elder So and So is not going to be there to back you up at the pearly gates. <laughs> You make your choices and you are responsible for them, always, and uh, and so you can't ask for other people to back you up. You, you have to basically live with your choices.
0: I realize as you're answering it, I just asked for a prescriptive guide to not be <laughs> prescriptive. Exactly.
3: <laughs>
0: so I guess you just got to do it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Good. That's right. <laughs>
3: Well, I think all right. that's all we have for the questions, unless you had any other ones, Brian.
0: Uh, no, I am good. I do think Jennifer should remind us about her seminars that are coming up.
3: Yeah, so
4: the seminars are November 7th and 8th. They're in one in Maryland on the 7th, uh, two in Alexandria, Virginia on the 8th. And if you go to my website, which is finlayson com, you can find information there about both the um the live presentations I'm doing in DC, as well as recorded courses on sexuality and desire that I
3: um,
4: that are available there.
3: Thank for. you so much, and a reminder to everyone listening: if you have questions for Dr. Finlayson Fife, we'll have links to how you can ask them. Uh, if you prefer anonymously, we can do that too. Uh, but yeah, check those out at the bottom of the page and join us next time.
0: I think that was a good and useful, highly productive discussion we had. And uh, let me tell you why. I think the podcasts and the blog posts are really important because they just put information out there. Uh, because, one, a lot of us are ill informed about these sort of issues, two, they're uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and then even if you are confident in your opinions or, or in the information that you have, a lot of times you're still uncomfortable because you're afraid of how the comments that you make or the ideas that you share are going to be perceived. You know, you might be saying one thing, but at the same time you're paranoid that someone's interpreting what you're saying in a in a totally different direction because whenever you get into this sex stuff that it's loaded with euphemisms and um, you know, people can take things the wrong way than what you intended. So I just really appreciate what uh, Jennifer's doing. She has a really uh, calm demeanor and she's able to explain things pretty clearly, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you're saying, I've, I've seen, I, I, I think there have been able to have a lot of these different conversations in kind of the Mormon podcast world and one of the things that i see often is kind of going into a little bit of shaming and stuff because we're so it's such kind of, such a kind of uncomfortable different kind of thing so you have some people sharing a differing opinion for example um, talking about um, masturbation in a in a relationship and and kind of how that can kind of benefit a, an individual. Some people will take that. I, I've seen differing podcasters be attacked for kind of trying to promote masturbation or something like that, where where it's really they're 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 trying to explore and kind of uh, I think look at some of these differing issues and how to come to more healthy relationships in particular situations uh, and trying to give differing advice and trying to scientifically look at some of these difficult things. So, so it, it can be difficult because we have such a often a lot of people have such a solid view on and such a black and white view on a lot of differing things. But I think it's important to be willing to listen to, differing perspectives, even if you take a different, a different view on it, but, but just being able to listen and hear that different advice and explorations.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, It's just a super nuanced, super charged topic. So it's just, it's hard to talk about um, in our, in our culture. So let's quit talking about it. and Let's talk about what's going (laughs) on next week. Uh, we we talked before about the scripture podcast, and this time around, I promise it will be the scripture podcast. We had to get
2: this one in. Uh,
1: it, it, it can't it can't be one of those um, late night TV jokes where you are like, "Oh, okay." We had to bump them. We had to bump our guests, so we'll, we'll get them <laughs> on next time. So, that's right. <laughs> and just as always, um, for you listening, if you are enjoying what we're doing, we always uh, would highly appreciate um, reviews and ratings in iTunes and also always feel free to give us feedback and to help us improve and, and make the podcast the very best it can be.
0: Yes. We appreciate any feedback so we can uh, do a good job and make something that's enjoyable to, and fun to share. And so with that, we'll, we'll end this sucker and we'll see you next week. Talking scripture.